Welcome to MC Squared, a podcast that brings minds together to cultivate incredible ideas. This podcast's primary focus is dedicated to showing off highlights and discussing possible applications of some of the most innovative work that academics have spent tireless hours pioneering. Join us as we discuss the newest advances in technology so you can start unpackaging the marvels of a scientific world. I am your host, Jonathan Kramer, and today I'm joined by my studio producer, Constantine Milam. I'll start a bit differently today. I wanted to read a recent news report posted just a few days ago that I found extremely alarming. The campfire in Butte County, California, has now burned 142,000 acres, destroyed more than 13,000 buildings, and killed 63 people. Hundreds remain missing. More than 5,000 fire personnel and 600 engines continue to fight the fire, which is just 45% contained. Smoke has been pouring south, blanketing the San Francisco Bay Area with what has become the world's worst air quality. My concern is not where it originated, but why this disaster has become uncontainable. To get to the bottom of this and understand what might be causing this and many other crises, I wanted to speak with an atmospheric physicist. We look into how scientists analyze global data and why these such problems are becoming amplified in the Earth's atmosphere. And now it is time to understand what may be an atmosphere crisis. In today's episode, I've invited Carrie Cook, an atmospheric physicist in the Geoscience Department at the University of Texas. Professor Cook has been a prevalent figure within the Department of Climate Dynamics. She has been analyzing climate data in different geographical regions of the Earth to fill in the blanks behind one of humanity's most pressing problems, global warming. Cook has published numerous scientific articles and has accumulated over 5,000 citations. She is also a published author of the book Climate Dynamics, a comprehensive review on the status of climate change. Now, before we really get into any of the nitty-gritty details, I wanted to talk about your background, kind of how you got interested in observing geoscience data and how you got into climate dynamics, atmospheric particles, and all that good stuff. So tell me a little about your passion initially when it came to these topics. Well, I originally uh, was, as an undergraduate, I was an astronomy major wanting to be an astronaut. Um, (laughs) An astronaut? (laughs) An astronaut. And uh, I went to graduate school, started graduate school at Rice in the Department of Space Physics, um, still thinking that, and then realizing rather than being up in a tin can up up uh, outside of the Earth, what I was really interested in was the Earth itself. So I started migrating uh, lower and lower down toward the Earth's surface from my astronomical studies. And I got interested in big computer models. And that interest in big computer models led me to climate, because our study of climate and definitely our projections for future climate are based on some of the uh, biggest, most comprehensive computer models running today in the world. Were you trying to like utilize those type of computer models for space, and then you kind of transitioned into Earth space? Yep. Now you're in, <laughs> now you're in the sphere of Earth. Okay, yep. cool. Okay, so kind of transitioning now into like the computer models and all that good data stuff. Um, I want to talk a little bit more about like the metrics and the accumulation of the data, the kind of hints at these different climate chains and the dynamics of it. Maybe just a few different specific points that you use. I know you've talked about precipitation and wind pressures in specific regions that you study. I'm curious to learn a little bit more about that. All scientific 
study of the Earth system and its change has to be founded in the observations. That's, that's the basis for everything. Um, and so these observing systems are crucial for understanding if and how and where the Earth's climate is changing. We depend not on local measurements so much, and certainly not on individual local measurements, but we, we need global scale measurements. And the place we get those is from our satellite observing system. And it's so important to keep the satellite observing system together so we can have these truth measurements to compare our theories and our models and our understanding with. The beginning of the satellite observing era is usually taken as 1979. So that's when we first started flying uh, satellites that could return the kind of data we need to understand the climate. So we, we really only have this global satellite measurements since that time and going on into the future now. Is there a specific set of satellites that UT uses or the geoscience department specifically maybe that you use? No, no, not specifically that we would use here. It's a collection and it's a worldwide collection. Oh, really? Okay. It's the satellites put up by NASA. It's the satellites put up by the European Space Agency, by the Japanese, by all the countries working together to put together this global view of the Earth system. Wow. What are you specifically monitoring when you're using all these satellites? Well, we're monitoring winds, surface temperature, precipitation. We can monitor essentially the the color of the surface. So you can see, for example, if a region is browning, um, like a rainforest is, is like less brown, important for the Congo Basin, for example, where there's very few uh, ground-based observations. People look at ocean color, and it can help understand how ocean currents are changing or how the health of, of ocean ecosystems are developing. And when we project for the future, we combine the understanding that we gain from these observations with models that can project the future. And these models are based on the laws of physics. They're force equals mass times acceleration. And the second law of thermodynamics, which says you have to have have to add heat to something if it warms up. You know, they're the basic laws of physics. And the basic laws of physics combined with the, the truth of the observations is what we use to project climate into the future. Okay. So we spoke previously last time about the Sahel region. And I guess that's the northern part of Congo, correct? Or right between the Sahara and the Congo, right? Yeah, kind of. Just... Think of it as south of the Sahara Desert, the really marginal region there. Okay. It's, it's got savanna vegetation and a lot of grazing and, and nomadic uh, livelihoods there. Gotcha. Okay, so using these equations that we were talking about previously, all the data, all that good stuff, what kind of things can we see from the data? What kind of predictions can we make, especially in the Sahel region? It's right on the equator. I feel like there's a lot more heat. Is that 
uh, an well, accurate it's assumption? Well, it's a little bit off the equator, which is interesting. Okay. It's about 15 degrees north. The Sahara is around 25 degrees north. All of the world's deserts are off the equator. They're in the subtropical regions where the large-scale circulation brings sinking air, and that uh, suppresses convection, and that's why the deserts occur at 25, 30 degrees north in both hemispheres. So just south of there at about 15 degrees north would be this marginal area called the Sahel, and it stretches all the way across this huge huge continent from the Atlantic over to the Indian Ocean. It's a really large area supporting millions of people. What we're seeing there is a recovery of the rainfall. And what I mean by a recovery of the rainfall is the reversal of a long period of decreasing rainfall that we saw since the 1960s. And now that decreasing rainfall has turned around since the early 90s and is now increasing again. So from a drought to an overly precipitating region? Wouldn't call it overly precipitating. We, we say it's kind of recovering from... Just recovering, <laughs> okay. Recovering from the, from the big downturn <laughs> gotcha. uh, that went over, you know, about 30 years, okay. 35 years. And we're thinking that that increase in the rainfall in the Sahel is associated with this amplified warming of the Sahara Desert. So I think you know that along with the global warming signal, not every place on the on the globe is warming at the same rate. And the big example is the Arctic. Everyone understands, I think, the Arctic is warming much faster than the rest of the globe. And the reason is that once you start melting some snow and ice, the surface gets darker, it absorbs more solar radiation, and that amplifies the warming process. And it's about three or four times the rate of the rest of the globe for the Arctic warming. A sort of analogous thing is happening over the Sahara because it's dry. The first thing that the surface does with any excess heat coming into it is evaporate water. And that keeps the surface cooler. But over the Sahara, there's no, there's no water to evaporate. So the surface just heats up like crazy. It's the exact same thing as in the summertime. If you're outside in your bare feet and you step on a dry pavement, it's going to be a lot hotter than a wet pavement. That thing stings, yeah. Yes, it's the exact same thing. And so we're observing that the Sahara Desert is warming up at about three times the rate of the rest of the tropics, three times faster than the rest of the tropics. And that's amplifying a lot of the circulation systems over northern Africa and bringing more rainfall to the Sahel. Three times. Three times the rate, wow. similar to the to the Arctic. Are there any other regions that are also increasing at that rate that you know of? Um, well, the Arabian Desert is also, and it's stored sort of an extension of the Sahara Desert. I've also looked at some of the other smaller deserts around the globe, and I find they're not behaving the same way. I think they're just not big enough, you know, to really maintain their own climate. Other things are, are happening around them that, you know, in this very complex climate system that are not allowing this uh, desert amplification to occur. Okay. So... Now that I'm kind of grasping around with this heat-induced problem, I wanted to ask where this comes from. I'm sure most people have heard of the term greenhouse gases, but I wanted to grab your opinion on the correlation or the weight of the correlation of the greenhouse gases 
in terms of the heating of the Sahara and those different regions and maybe talk about what greenhouse gases really are if people don't already know. So I guess the question is, we have very confidently, with very high precision, observed that the globe is warming. Correct. How do we know that's greenhouse gases? And what I hear a lot, people say, well, climate changes all the time. Climate has a lot of natural variability. Look at the difference between the ice age and the interglacial period, for example. Look at the little ice age. We know that climate is a very variable system. And that's absolutely true. But going back to something I mentioned earlier, is that the climate system is governed by the laws of physics. It can't be warming up unless there's a reason for it to be warming up. It's not magical. It's not just, you know, random variations, right? We have to appeal to the laws of physics. When we look back at the ice ages, for example, we know what causes them. Those are caused by small variations in the orbit of the Earth around the sun, and it changes the amount of sunlight, the amount of solar radiation that comes into the planet. Um, when we look at the Little Ice Age, for example, we see that that's caused by a spate of volcanic activity, right? These things have their causes. And so now we're observing a decadal scale trend, upward trend in the temperature of the Earth, and we say, What's the cause, right? And people have looked at a lot of different, a lot of different possibilities for the cause of this. And the only one that stands up is the increased CO2 in the atmosphere. The amount of warming is completely consistent with the observed increase in greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. It's captured accurately by our models. It's supported by theory. And besides, there's no other reason that could explain the warming. So with increased CO2 levels, and it's not just CO2, correct? There's other greenhouse gases. CO2, methane, nitrous oxide are the big ones okay. in that order. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Gotcha. So CO2 is rising at the fastest rate right now. No, actually methane is methane. at the fastest oh. rate, but CO2 occurs in a higher abundance. So we, it's, it's, it's not increasing as quick as methane. Methane's sort of catching up with CO2. And once we get past around 2050, 2060, we're going to be seeing bigger and bigger effects due to methane. Hey guys, thanks for listening. If you like this podcast and want to support it, feel free to subscribe or leave a review on iTunes. Every review helps boost our chances of other people finding this podcast. To receive weekly updates, you can also subscribe to our homepage at mcsquaredpodcast.com. And now, it's time to get back to our discussion with Professor Carrie Cook. So CO2 and methane. Okay, so there's a production of these chemicals from somewhere. Where do you think the main source of these chemicals are coming from? Well, that we know also, incontrovertibly. These chemicals, the CO2, is coming from the burning of fossil fuels primarily, with some sources also in the production of cement. When cement is produced in the manufacturing process, a lot of CO2 is released. But it's primarily from the burning of fossil fuels. And we know this for two main reasons. 
One is that we can inventory how much fossil fuels are being burned, and we know how much from the laboratory, how much CO2 is being released just from economic inventories around the world. And we compare the rate at which CO2 is being released with the rate at which the increase is happening in the atmosphere, and they match. And they match by with a factor of roughly 50%. It's not even all of the burned excess CO2 is not just going into the atmosphere, about half of it's going into the ocean. So we can inventory this and see where it's going, just a budget for what we know is being released. The other reason that we know the excess CO2 in the atmosphere is from burning of fossil fuels is from isotopic measurements. All chemicals have isotopes. For example, we know that carbon is carbon-12, which means it has 12, uh, 12 protons, say, in its, in its nucleus. And then there's these kind of modified forms of the chemicals. In the case of carbon, there's carbon-13, kind of an oddball with 13. And then one extra um, neutron, correct? Yes, yes. And when plants take in carbon in the process of photosynthesis, they don't like what's called the heavy carbon. They like to just take the regular old carbon-12. Flows much better. Works better in photosynthesis yeah, for some for sure. reason. I'm not a chemist or a biologist, <laughs> yeah. um, but they don't like the carbon-13. They like the carbon-12 we'll <laughs> for their photosynthetic processes. And of course, this is well known from laboratory measurements. When we look in the atmosphere, we see that the, CO, the excess CO2 released, it's all carbon-12. It's not the normal ratio of carbon-12 to carbon-13 that we see in our atmosphere. So we say, oh, this carbon is coming from a plant source. Well, what's a plant source? The fossil fuels, right? Because they formed from ancient plants. And that's right. You bury all the ancient plants, and that's what formed the fossil fuels. So the, so the oil and gas, which of course we can measure also, is light. There's not much carbon-13 there. So when we look at the ratio of carbon-13 to carbon-12 in the atmosphere, we see it going down, which says that excess CO2 is coming from the fossil fuels. So then my next question is, how big of a problem do you think this is then? If, if in more years, more people are going to get cars, more people are going to continue to burn fossil fuels, more production of CO2 is going to accumulate, how much worse is the environment going to get? I mean, I, I've heard, and I'm sure you have in recent news, the wildfires in California, I, I would assume they're somewhat related to some kind of climate dynamic change or something like that. Do you think we could continue to see some kind of problems like this as we continue to produce more and more CO2? So the world is struggling now to level off CO2 emissions. And there's kind of some good news. We've managed to do that to some extent. Um, in 2015 and 2014, we didn't see an increase in CO2 emissions in, in those years, 2014 and 2015. It's, and, and people saying, ah, oh, you know, we've done it. We've leveled off these emissions. 2016, though, it went up again. And it was, uh, according to the inventories, it was because of some internal policies in China where they started burning some more coal. 
And the other thing is this leveling off of CO2 emissions is in part due to having a lot more natural gas uh, be burned, in particular in the U.S., which is a huge contributor, of course, to see excess CO2 in the atmosphere. And the fact that we have switched more out of coal and oil to natural gas has been for economic reasons. And this is actually because of all the fracking that's been done which has made it economically feasible and the price of oil and gas being low has made it feasible, economically feasible to do the fracking and extract natural gas. Natural gas produces more energy with less CO2 emissions. It still causes CO2 emissions, but it's more efficient in terms of energy. So it helps us not emit as much CO2 while still having the energy for all of our lives and systems that that we use it for. If the U.S. were to switch back to coal and gas from natural gas, then we'd see a continued increase in CO2 emissions. But All in all, and not for the right reasons, for economic reasons, not for environmental reasons, we are seeing a leveling off in CO2 emissions in this country. And certainly other parts of the world, Europe is doing much better at reducing emissions. But even if the emission rate levels off, the CO2 in the atmosphere still increases. We're still putting excess CO2 in the atmosphere, just not more and more every year, right? So I think we're getting some kind of a handle on not having the emission rate go up every year, but it's still dumping a lot of excess CO2 into the atmosphere. So we are committed to some level of climate change, right? And we're seeing it now. We're seeing it in the wild, you know, the impacts of it in the wildfires. We're seeing it in the more intense storms. I just heard an estimate yesterday that looking at hurricanes Florence and Harvey and some of the big storms we've had recently, um, the estimates are the rainfall delivered from those systems was 5 to 10% greater because of already climate change that we have. So again, based on the laws of physics, running these climate models, 5 to 10% increase in, in precipitation from Harvey and from Florence and from these storms. So we're already seeing it. Sea level is already rising. Has there been a lot of hesitation to accept these results? And I guess the problematicness of it? <laughs> well, it depends on who's accepting. We are finding now through polling the public that the majority of citizens in the United States, um, something like 65%, 70% understand that climate is changing and they understand that climate is changing due to human activity. People are accepting that. The disconnect is in doing something about it, seeing the urgency of it, perhaps with our political systems. States, some states are acting. California is an example. Almost every city is acting. Austin, here at home in Austin, we're very worried about um, water resources uh, for the future. The urban foresters are on this, thinking about changing what kind of trees are planted in the city. The mixture for asphalt on the roads is being changed to accommodate for warmer climates. 
city planners and managers know they're not being responsible if they don't take this into account for the parts of the urban infrastructure that need to be planned out 20, 30, 40 years. And they are taking it into account. Cities and some states are adopting uh, climate neutral policies. Austin has one to be what carbon neutral by 2050, I believe, and we're partway there. And but but at the federal level, nothing is being done. It's being done by state and city governments. Really? Very individualized. Interesting. Local, very local, but people can see the local effects. Um, and there's a, maybe a very direct effect with very direct interaction with the citizens. I myself have testified and worked for the city of Austin about what climate change could be happening here. Many citizens are mobilized and concerned about this. And this is, you know, a, a level at which they can have an impact and, and discuss things very directly with the leaders of the city. Gotcha. Okay, so moving on from this point, we have at least some former results hinting at what I would think is a pretty severe situation of like climate change and atmospheric dynamics. What do you see yourself studying in, in the future to progress this idea or concept? What I see myself doing, I am continuing to try to push forward on understanding climate change on a regional basis. Our confidence about the warming of the globe is, is global. We know the whole globe has to warm, you know, by the laws of physics. We know that precipitation systems have to get more intense he and strong. evenly distributed is it even we don't oh, know okay. right it's not evenly distributed just like we were talking about for the sahara some places are really sensitive to the climate change some places are more resilient and for people to try to adapt to this to minimize loss of life and ecosystems we need to know where the hot spots are where are the places that we need to be most worried about it so i have been pushing on trying to understand climate change on a regional basis and the area that i've been working mostly on has been africa this is a vulnerable population um, a large and vulnerable population in Africa. And I've been just found it very rewarding to work on African climate. So we're looking at the Sahel, as we talked about before. We're looking at the Congo Basin. People are concerned there's a drying signal there. Not confirmed yet, but there's uh, red flags <laughs> going Not up. Not good. <laughs> yeah. No. And of course, um, preserving the rainforest and the biodiversity there is very important. And would you say they don't have the infrastructure to support their own ecosystems and, and such? I know that financially, perhaps some African committees or societies are not as well off as Western culture. And, exactly. And so I, I would assume that they would need the support. They would exactly. Need, especially the scientific support saying this is not a good region. Now, when they, when they get that data, when you produce those results... Do you plan on building some kind of system there, or do you say you got to get out of that region? We got to allocate you somewhere else. I think people want to stay in their in their homes. I would assume so um, too. Yes, and there may be some places that become unviable and uninhabitable, but certainly the effort now is adaptation. Right, adapt to the climate change. We're working, for example, in East Africa. And the scientists 
work, the scientists, I'm working with scientists from the US and from the UK. And we work with the scientists and the managers and the decision makers in East Africa, for example, in Kenya, worrying about water resources for that region, worrying about if storms become more intense, does this overwhelm the existing sewer systems? for example, and how can you modify your sewer systems to make them more resilient and keep people safe when you have stronger storms? Even though some of the research that's being done on Africa is being done by scientists in the Western, so-called Western countries, we work with scientists in Africa and the decision-making and the information feeds through the decision-makers and the leaders in the African countries. Wow, okay. I think I got this pretty good picture now. That's all I have for you today. Thank you so much for speaking with me. I think that really kind of covers covered it. Covered it all. <laughs> so thank you so much. I really thank appreciate you. your time. If you like this podcast and are eager to learn more, check out our website at mcsquaredpodcast.com. There you'll find all the learning visuals that we talked about in this episode and links to our guests' website. If you want to stay updated with us, subscribe on our contact page for the latest news. If you have any burning questions or ideas for the show, shoot us an email and we will be happy to respond. Thank you for listening and be sure to share this episode with your friends on any social media website that tickles your fancy. Let's work together to get everyone scienced up in the world of discovery. P.S. All music in this podcast has been brought to you by Snockercott. You can find them on SoundCloud at Snockercott. That's S-N-O-C-K-E-R space C-O-T.